Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. With a summer heat wave pushing temperatures past 100 degrees Fahrenheit, many Texas inmates fear dying or falling gravely ill. The Texas prison system houses 120,000 inmates, but only 30% of their units are fully air-conditioned. Inmates and advocates believe that the actions taken by officials to mitigate the dangerous conditions continue to fall short. A new report released this week by the Texas A&M University Hazard Reduction and Recovery Center and Texas Prisons Community Advocates stated, quote, Without air conditioning or regulated temperatures, the system will continue to be under extreme stress, and members of the prison population will remain on the brink of potential health emergencies. This could kill them, but if it doesn't, it will certainly degrade their health over time. The report also described oppressive working conditions caused by the lack of air conditioning in prisons across the state. The head of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice described this as contributing to recent difficulties filling 7,000 vacant prison jobs. On Friday, July 15th, a prisoner at Lansing Correctional Facility outside Kansas City, Missouri, was stabbed by another prisoner. Randall Bowman, Executive Director of Public Affairs with the Kansas Department of Corrections, stated that staff members who responded to the stabbing were assaulted by other inmates. Four staff members were injured and received medical attention on the site, while another staff member made the decision to get additional medical assistance. Sarah LaFriends, a Department of Corrections official, stated that the incident occurred at 7 p.m. in the pod, a section of the facility that houses violent offenders, and described a, quote, loss of control over that area of the prison. The city of New Orleans has been ordered to continue a $60 million jail expansion project after the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld an order from U.S. District Judge Lance Afric. He stated that the, quote, special needs building will ensure that people with mental and physical health issues can be jailed without violating their constitutional rights. Although construction crews haven't yet broken ground, plans for the jail have been in the works for years. Under pressure from a federal consent decree mandating reforms at the existing jail, former Mitch Landrew agreed to build the facility, and the former sheriff, Marlon Gusman, supported the expansion. New Orleans' current sheriff, Susan Hudson, and New Orleans Mayor LaToya Cantrell argue that the new building is a waste of resources, suggesting the city instead renovate the existing jail. The U.S. Department of Justice and lawyers at the MacArthur Justice Center, who represent incarcerated people at the jail, said the city has violated their consent decree by halting work during the pandemic. In January 2021, Judge Afric issued an order requiring the city to continue the expansion. The city appealed to the circuit court, arguing that the sheriff's office now provides adequate care, that the jail's population has dropped, and that the city lacks the funds to build the new jail. But a 15-page opinion, drafted by Judge Risa Hawkins-Barksdale, a George Bush appointee, stated that the current jail lacks suicide-resistant cells, activity space for programs, or an infirmary, and that the city's assertion that it didn't have enough money to build the expansion also, quote, lacks merit. The city has $48 million in available FEMA funding. Architectural plans for the building are now complete, 
and have been submitted for review to the City Department of Safety and Permits and the State Fire Marshal's Office. Next, the City will begin formal procurement for the additional funding needed. Construction is expected to take two years. Timothy David Ray, a spokesperson for Sheriff Huston, stated, The citizens of New Orleans elected her to serve as their sheriff, embracing her commitment to retrofitting the existing jail. In light of the decision from the Fifth Circuit, the sheriff is exploring her options and considering next steps. We're sticking close to home this week. We share the first part of a panel on the effects of incarceration on families. Max E. Smith, Becky Harris, Stacy Flynn, and Ashley C. Ford speak on their experiences of having incarcerated loved ones or how their time inside affected their family members. All Indiana residents, they tell us about the stigmas people face when they have family inside, as well as the financial burden placed on families. As one panelist mentions, sometimes the pain families endure is seen as an extension of the punishment for the incarcerated person, a cruel way to justify the burden placed on the shoulders of family members. I'd like to start to my right with Max E. Smith, um, who is a formerly incarcerated individual. So Max, would you like to share highlights of your story with us? I'm also grateful to be here for Kurt Vonnegut too, because I'm a fan um, and it is ironic that that is what has brought me here because Kurt Vonnegut's helped me understand my experience. I uh, came to be a, an incarcerated person um, after many years of uh, being a sort of law-abiding citizen, um, a parent law-abiding citizen, I was always a drug addict and I was really good at it. Um, so I could function and not get caught. But in 2015, I was arrested and, and spent um, 945 days in Monroe County Jail for possession of a bag of white stuff that people uh, say is illegal. During that time though, you know, the, the, the rippling effects of incarceration are still rippling in my life because of that time that I spent in jail. Um, for the first couple of years I was in jail, I was just in the in population um, where it was a very depressing, um, almost unimaginable if you haven't done it um, to to exist in that way because everybody who's in there, um, when you get arrested, you lose um, everything. You your um, personal belongings are in jeopardy or or gone in. in most cases, um, your social structure is gone because of um, lots of reasons, stigma, um, just the separation itself. Um, lots of people don't, um, you know, they forget about you when you're locked up. They're, they're not proactive. Most people aren't proactive in trying to stay in touch with um, someone who's been locked up. Um, during the last part of uh, my stay at the Monroe County Jail, I was um, fortunate to um, be a part of a, um, a special dorm in the jail that was uh, ran by a not-for-profit New Leaf, New Life. They called it the Air Dorm, Addicts and Recovery Dorm. Um, this was a dorm where volunteers from the outside um, came in with different programming. Uh, Mary Getze, who's also on the panel, that's where I met her. I didn't know about Kurt Vonnegut. 
until then. Um, I didn't know that I could write. Um, you know, you probably expected, uh, you know, more bad um, from, you know, more bad uh, effects of incarceration from me maybe, but um, the, the effects of my incarceration are still um, rippling in my life because I've, it's, it's made me able to love those people that I've um, used to look, you know, I, I got by with things for so long that I would see my friends get arrested and I would think, man, you know, get together, buddy. What? Um, so I stigmatized people. Now I, now I get it. I can, I'm able to love people um, in a different way because I get it completely. And um, so that, that's sort of my story. You know, that doesn't really jive with, um, I, I know many, many bad stories. Um, and still, um, I own a small construction company and I only employ felons and drug addicts. And uh, um, so, yeah, I, I, still, uh, I, I still live it every day and I'm grateful for your book and happy to be here. Thank you so much. And I think that your story really jives well for all of us. So thank you. thank you. And next we have Beth Harris, who is a grandmother and a participant in the CAP program, which we'll hear more about kids with absent parents. Um, I have, um, for the last four years, had custody of two grandchildren. And before that, had custody of a grandchild for a year um, because of incarceration. Um, and it, it affects your whole being. It affects everything about you. It makes you a different person. Um, you go through isolation financially. The burden is on the family um, of the person who's incarcerated. Um, if, if they're in a place where they either have to choose working or school, um, if they work, then they can kind of um, take care of themselves, get their own commissary, all of those things. But if they have to choose you know, taking classes like the court says, then the family's responsible for that. And you get these phone calls saying, I don't have socks, I don't have toothpaste, I don't have food. Um, you send them the last $40 that you have, and then you get a phone call and say, oh, well, the gang took all my stuff and now they, I have to pay twice the amount to get it back. And that's what I dealt with for the last four years. Um, you know, taking care of these children, but then having to take care of uh, my son who was in jail. And it's just like, it makes you hard, it makes you distrustful of um, the incarcerated person and um, the authorities. And, and it's really hard to get um, a normal life back for them and for yourself because it does, it affects the whole rest of your life. Them trying to get a job, live a normal life when they get out, and then the family trying to be supportive and trustful of them again. We have Stacy Flynn, who's the Assistant Director of New Leaf, New Life. Thank you, Lisa Marie. Also happy to be here. Um, I would like to introduce myself today as a person that belongs to an underserved population of community members because I myself am also a formerly incarcerated individual. My longest length of stay in the facility was 14 months and three days. And I didn't begin a life of getting caught until I was around 30. So I was kind of, you know, late to get started in comparison to some others. And it's a completely different world. 
And I too was one of the uh, burdensome family members because I had a young son at the time that thankfully went to the care of my grandmother. And the effects of that relationship, which is still in such desperate need of mending, you know, is existing in my life. You know, from those choices I made several years ago, I continue to experience many effects, you know, the ones within my family. Um, they were not very understanding. They didn't have much support, and I'm not sure that there were many resources in place for them that they knew of. Um, so, you know, they do the best that they can. Um, also, with that lack of understanding, I think that they didn't know how to support me as well. You know, they had their hands full. So, um, I never asked for much. You know, I kind of made my way through that experience the best I knew how to. You do learn how to adapt. It is a completely different world. And you have to learn really quick how to, you know, mingle in that inner society of folks. I did find support myself through organizations, through people that I had just met. Um, folks like Max, like Mary, who I read a book with one time in Monroe County Correctional Facility. And I came to find out that there were people in my community that did care about me as an individual. They did care about giving me the resources I need to have you know, the best possible chances of rebuilding my life post-incarceration. The barriers that are in my life, some of which will stick with me throughout the entirety. Um, I will always have marks against me. Uh, there will always be barriers in place as far as my basic human needs, such as housing and employment. I have to find different avenues to take. And that has led me to really challenge myself. I can't say that I'm not thankful for my poor experiences only because it taught me to be the person that I am today. Um, I don't think I would have the character that I think I have today or live my life with a different type of integrity that I have now because I'm extra appreciative and extra grateful for all of um, my small victories. And today I have found a place at New Leaf New Life Luckily for me, my personal lived experience was actually uh, one of the qualifications for the work that I do. And for the first time in my life, I feel like I'm doing something that has purpose, that has meaning. And the fact that I can relate to others going through the same experiences or similar experiences means the world to me. I know what it's like to have to overcome the things that they are facing now. Um, you know, there are things that I'm still facing, but to be an example for folks that, that can see me and know my history and my situation and still see any amount of success, I think is really what um, can combat the recidivism rates and to help others in my community is really, what my life is is about today and I would not have it any other way.
Thank you so much. Thank you, Stacy. And last introduction, but certainly not least, uh, Ashley C. Ford is with us today, author of the novel, uh, or memoir, excuse me, <laughs> Somebody's Daughter. And I'd like to add that from reading this um, book, it really did spark the framing and the recruitment of this panel to come together. So Ashley, thank you on a few levels. And if you'd like to share some introductory words of highlighting your story, that would be wonderful. Absolutely. Uh, first of all, thanks so much for having me. It's been really great to be here um, and to sit with these illustrious people on this panel who are doing this extremely important work that a lot of people turn a blind eye to. Um, so thank you guys for having open eyes because you have to choose that. And you did. And the consistency is a beautiful thing to see. Um, I Grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I was born in 1987. My dad went to prison in 1987. My mom found out she was pregnant with my brother um, about a week after my dad was arrested. She was 22 years old, um, newly 22 years old, and my dad was two weeks from turning 21. Long story short, um, my dad didn't get out of prison until about a week before I turned 30. And that's when I was able to have a life with him in some capacity. Um, yeah, growing up the kid of an incarcerated parent is one of the hardest experiences of my life. Um, not just because of the reality of having your parent not in the home, um, having a home that does not have two incomes, having a home with a traumatized mother, um, and a community that loves and cares for you, but honestly believes that the best thing for you and your family is that nobody talk about this. Nobody bring it up. Nobody mention it. Even as we are living with the consequences and the symptoms of having an incarcerated loved one. When people ask me, and every once in a while somebody does ask me if, I, if my dad did what he did to go to prison, if he deserved it, um, I used to say, yeah. Like, yeah, he deserved it. You know, and I do believe that my dad deserved to be held accountable. His crimes were heinous. They were terrible. And he confessed to those crimes immediately um, and knew that he was going to be going away for a long time. Knew that he had hurt and harmed and irreparably um, damaged his family. He understood that. I understood. You know, not as a one-year-old, but later. Um, but now I know that none of us deserved what happened in the aftermath of my father's crimes. Um, and especially not us, not his children, <laughs> who one wasn't even born, the other one couldn't walk. Um, 
we did not deserve to grow up in a world that asked us and in a lot of cases demanded that we be ashamed of choices we didn't make and ashamed of the life we lived as a consequence to someone else's choices, even though we did not make those choices. It was really hard to grow up um, understanding deeply that in general, people believed that the hardships that had come in my life as a result of my father's incarceration were part of my dad's punishment. That my suffering, my brother's suffering, my mother's suffering was part of his punishment for his choices. And therefore, how could they really feel bad about what I had been through? My dad got out of prison in November of uh, 2016. And since then, we've been able to build more of a relationship than a lot of people I know who have a parent who has spent a significant amount of time behind bars. Um, but every bit of happiness that I have with my dad um, in the past five years, five, six years, is tinged with sadness because I'm a 35-year-old woman now. And I'm doing things like going to the park with my dad for the first time, going out to breakfast with my dad for the first time. My dad and I got into an argument one time and I was like upset and I was like living with him. But then there was a part of me that was giddy because, oh my God, I just got into a fight with my dad. <laughs> and I had never had that before. I didn't know what that felt like. So the consequences of incarceration as a 35 year old person who has never been incarcerated consistently reverberate in my life, consistently. Even to the point that my mother and I's relationship in a lot of ways is lacking or in other ways broken. And so much of that, I am aware now more than ever, comes from the fact that my dad's incarceration meant, and it didn't have to mean this, but it did, that my mom never got the opportunity to be the mom she wanted to be from the beginning. Never got the opportunity to be the mom she wanted to be. She did everything right. She was married when she had me. She was going to school. My dad was working. They had all these plans for their life. She had all these plans for her life. She was what a lot of people in her neighborhood called a good girl. And with one choice that my dad made, my mother's life was irreparably damaged. And I think what I see these people up here doing, what I hope people are here to hear about or think about, is a way to imagine a different way of doing it. 
because I don't think that it is necessary. I don't think my suffering, my mother's suffering, my brother's suffering, my dad's family's suffering, I don't think that that was a necessary part of his punishment. And I think there might be a way for us to hold people accountable for their actions while keeping in mind what bleeds into the lives of the people around them and how we can prevent that at the same time. Because even though we might think that shouldn't be our problem, it actually is our problem. Because we grow up to be people in the world. And if we grow up to be people in the world who don't believe anybody's on our side and that we have been marked since childhood as bad and shameful and wrong, somebody's gonna pay for that. And it's gonna be us in a lot of cases, but it's gonna be a lot of other innocent people too. So we could nip that in the bud if we choose to. Thank you so much, Ashley. And thank you all for your vulnerability, for your openness, for your clarity, and for sharing your stories with, with the struggles and all that's a part of it. So please, anything else to add before we shift gears a little bit? I think what Ashley said about the effects of the children, but the, also the people that didn't do the crime, is that when I would go to the jail, I've been a teacher for 30 years. When I would go to the jail, I would see a lot of my families there, but then the treatment that I would get from the, the people that I voted into office and was paying their jobs was horrendous. And um, I got treated like I was a scumbag of the earth, you know, and I was just trying to come and see my loved one and, and have some contact and stay in contact. And that was, it's really hard because you do, you are stigmatized and it's, it just affects your whole, whole life. And then trying to take kids there to see, you know, to stay in contact with their loved one is just, it's really hard. One of the things that I noticed is that um, there are no mental health services for families of incarcerated people. There are none. Um, I've looked for years and years and years. Like it shocked me that my mom had a, as a 22 year old single mother at this point of one and pregnant with another, that nobody ever was like, would you like to see a counselor? Would you like to see a therapist? Would you like, like at any point? Um, I see a lot of people struggling with the trauma of having an incarcerated loved one and feeling like they're not allowed to seek help for that. That they're not allowed because of where the trauma comes from. Or that they're not allowed to love the person who did the bad thing. As if love is a thing that like, we choose, you know, love is an action, but when it comes to our loved ones, our family, our parents, it, the love you have for that person, even if you want them to be held accountable, doesn't go away because they do something bad or because they do something wrong or because they commit a crime. And there should be a way for people to process that truth, to embrace that complex set of emotion when something like this is going on in your community. 
and there's nothing. There's nothing. I've never even heard of somebody specializing in working with family members of the incarcerated, which is wild to me because when you think about the numbers that we have of people who are incarcerated in America, when we think about these mass incarceration numbers, why do we think that these people don't belong to anybody? Why do we think they don't have people who are reeling in the wake of this? Um, it's a very, very big missed opportunity to, um, to minimize the damage done by crime and incarceration. This has been KiteLine. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.